Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to uh, to gather with the brethren to uh, study your word, to worship you. Lord, we ask that the uh, Holy Spirit would be with us today to teach us, clear the distractions from our minds, so that we may be open to your word, change us because we've been uh, affected by your word. And uh, we pray that uh, this study, this hour, uh, the worship service, all we do would be uh, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I thought we'd start this morning with Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Did you know that? Did you know that? Yeah. Most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Whoever gets there first can read out. This is the Lord that they're talking about. This is 
God transcendent. And this is the same God that uh, appeared to Moses in the desert when Moses came to the burning bush and he said, who, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you or, or Yahweh sent you. And so that's, this is the word for uh, the, the proper name of God, um, not distinguished in persons. So that's why I say transcendent God. So it says here, the Lord, the transcendent God, says to my Lord, which is the word Adonai. And Adonai is typically associated with the, um, the lordship that would be like a king. Right? So a king um, is the highest authority in the kingdom and administers um, the, the law of the kingdom, essentially. Um, and in that sense, he's the one to whom all would bow down. And what we understand is in the transcendent God, in the one God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what you see here is you see a distinction <clears throat> within the Godhead being declared. And the distinction is specifically about the Son. It's a distinction about Messiah. It's a distinction about Jesus, which is why Jesus said, how come David said in the Spirit and quotes this psalm? Because he's trying to help the, the people that he's communicating to help them understand who he is. Because ultimately they ask him, so who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you this one? Are you Adonai? And he says, I am. And they kill him for it. right? Because he being a man made himself God. Can a man make themselves God? But God can become a man. Right? So this is an important distinction. A man cannot become God, but God can become man. And becoming man can be fully man and fully God. And that's what John wants us to understand. So that's why I picked this psalm this morning, because we're actually in, we're still in chapter 3, and I apologize for that. Um, does anybody know where we're at in chapter 3? I mean, it's been a couple of weeks. So we went through the first part of, of chapter 3 of John, which uh, was the conversation with Nicodemus. And what we understand, and I'm yeah, and while you're pondering this question, where are we at in John? I'll, uh, yeah, one, 1 through 21 is what we covered. And it took me three weeks to cover it, so I'll try and do better this morning. Um, so John is trying to help us understand who Christ is. In fact, you see that in the thesis of John, which I have up there on the, on the screen. John twenty thirty one, where John says, you know, there's a lot of things I could have written about uh, Jesus, the signs that he performed, the works that he did, but I chose these specific ones. He says, I have chosen, I have written these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what John's writing for is so that we'll know that who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, and what that means to be the Christ, and that coming to that knowledge um, that we will believe 
that we will actually embrace him as Adonai, as Lord. And that embracing the king and coming into his kingdom brings life. That's how we enter into eternal life, is by embracing the king. And we see that in the Old Testament, we see it in the Psalms, so this is nothing new, I know. Um, But that's what John's writing about, and he's writing about it in a very powerful way through these particular accounts that he's giving us. And I I broke out John to kind of help you, oops, it is brief, to help you understand kind of the overall structure of John, gave it to you in five parts. We spent a lot of time in the prologue, we're now in what some people would call the book of miracles, which is... uh, middle of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 12. And that's his public ministry. And the primary focus of the public ministry of Jesus was so that people would know who he was. Because he couldn't reach everybody, right? But those that he could reach could carry the message as to who he is and what he came for. What's the purpose that God would become man? What's that about? to know him and to believe. And then there's a private ministry. And that private ministry is shared with us as believers, so we know and believe, such that we can draw near, such that we can remain in him, we can abide in the vine. Chapter 15 of John, when we get there. And then there's the account of um, how God actually performed the miracle of joining us back into his kingdom, of grafting us in when we were uh, cut off or excluded. And then there's uh, encouragement at the end. And so that's kind of the, the overall structure of John. And in the book of, of uh, miracles, um, we see a replacement and a fulfillment of both religious institutions and religious practices. So looking at Judaism, that would be the institutions of Judaism, because that's he's writing to Jews, and the festivals of Judaism. So right now we're uh, in the passage that is, um, this is a, a parenthetical portion of John, because you'll notice that where we're at, uh, if you were to follow my uh, replacement and, and fulfillment architecture of John, you see that we're right here where the uh, replacement fulfillment of the teaching role institution within Judaism has been challenged and, and replaced with a more complete understanding. So Jesus, when he comes to Nicodemus, he said, you're a teacher, you should know this, right? And then he explains to him what he should know. So we see that that institution of the rabbi has been challenged in Jesus. They even called him rabbi, but he's more than that. But you'll see that there's a break here between 3.121, which we've covered, and uh, the, the, the well story in Samaria, which is another institution that we're going to challenge right? when we get to that. So we're in this, this part. Uh, so what, that's why I call it a parenthetical uh, passage. It's, it's a parenthesis. John wants to help us understand something more completely. So he gives us this parenthesis of explanation. And that's where we're at right now. We're in a a parenthesis, which is uh, John the Baptist's last testimony. 
Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll uh, take it apart and at any point in time jump in and ask questions. I guess I should ask first. Does that make sense, how we got to where we're at today? Okay. So let's go ahead and read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It says, after these things, so this is after the, the encounter with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So when I, I read this, and I'm going to give you a little, bit of, a little bit of a hint. If you're reading in uh, like a red-letter Bible, where they say these are the words of so-and-so, or um, they, this would, these aren't the words of Jesus, but uh, verses 31 through 36 are attributed as a quotation of John the Baptist. And I would say that's not accurate. It's more a narrative commentary. So John the Evangelist, the one who's writing the, the gospel for us, he has this, uh, this account of John the Baptist and people that are following him coming to him asking for clarification about baptism and about the ministry of Jesus. And it was prompted because they were asked by someone else and they didn't know what the right answer was. And so John the Baptist gives this, this account down through uh, verse 30. And his bottom line is, he must increase, but I must decrease. And what follows that is the narrator's commentary. So the narrator is now helping us get a bigger picture of what's going on. And he makes this statement, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. And speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So part of what his clarification is, is helping us understand positional authority. Right? It says, what he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. 
He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So in addition to talking about positional authority, he's talking about uh, the nature of revelation and the nature of truth, where where it originates from, how it can be apprehended. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So he's completing uh, his commentary on understanding at that point. We're going to come back to this, because this should inform us, uh, you know, when anytime you're, you're uh, uh, reading a book, and it goes from, it goes to the... Uh, trying to think of the the particular name that they give it. Essentially, it's an omniscient um, third person that's commenting, right? So you have first person and second person accounts and a dialogue and an action within the plot. And then all of a sudden you get this this, uh, omniscient commentary, right? So I I don't know if any of you have seen the movie... um, Oh, what what is it? It's got... uh, <laughs> it's the one where he's in, in a fiction story. What's I can't think of the name. Of it. Stranger than fiction. Stranger than fiction, right? And this guy finds out that his life is a story that's being written by this author, and that he wants to know if his 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 story is a a comedy or a tragedy, right? Because where he's going to end up depends on whether he's in a comedy or a tragedy, right? And he finds out that he's uh, in a tragedy. And that this author always kills the main uh, actor, the protagonist, in the end, right? And, uh, and so, but there's this one phrase that said, little did he know, which is that omniscient voice. That's the commentary, right? So John is giving this, little did they, do you know, this is what's going on here, right? Um, this is the uh, omniscient uh, third person. But um, we'll get to what that means and why he's helping us to try and understand those things. Let's take a look at the actual uh, conversation that occurs here. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. So, where was Jesus prior to this? Geographically. Pardon? He was in Jerusalem. Pardon? Yeah, so he was meeting with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. So he had come down from his home stomping grounds up here at Galilee. And he had come down probably by way of, uh, by the Jordan River, because that's the way that Jews would typically travel from the north to the south. They would go around the land that's called Samaria, which is right here in the middle. And he came down to this point here and goes up a spit. Here's Jerusalem right there, and I'll zoom in a little bit um, so that you can see where he was at and maybe where he was going. So if he comes from the north and he comes down here and he goes up uh, this ascent of Adumim and he comes into Jerusalem and he's spending his time there, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. So Judea at that point, cuts off pretty much at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the northernmost part of Judea. In fact, Jerusalem itself is not in Judea. It's in the uh, 
the tribe of Benjamin's land. And so when David, King David, set up uh, the capital and he wanted to join the north and the south, he didn't make the capital the capital of Judea, which would have been Hebron, down here. He actually moved it north up here to Jerusalem, so it would be a boundary city. It would be a place of unification. It would be a place where God could lead all of his people from. Right? So that was David's intent in, in making his city here. And David actually was just south of the city in what they call the city of David. But anyway, Jesus was up here in Jerusalem, and so he's staying in Judea. Well, they would have attributed all of this land here to Judea at that point in time. This land north would have been Samaria. So Jesus most likely went down the same route that he came up. He went down from Jerusalem back down to near Jericho here. Jericho would have been, again, on that boundary of Judea, would have extended down into this area. Um, and he would have been near the Jordan River where John had been baptized. So we know John the Baptist, one of the places he went to baptize was right here. So let's see if I can blow this up and you can see the Jordan River coming in. Can you kind of see that? So here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River. You can kind of see a dark shadow there. So right here is probably where John the Baptist would have been baptizing. It's a place where the river is pretty wide, and when it gets wider, it gets a little bit slower. Um, it was, it's a place where it could have taken people in and, and dunked them in the water as part of the baptism uh, ceremony process, and they wouldn't have washed away and gone downstream. <laughs> so um, Jesus, it's a serious problem. Karen and I have been there. <laughs> In the winter, in the, in the rainy season, and so water's moving. So uh, this would have been in the spring, because it was near Passover. So he, he would have been down here, and, and uh, Jesus would have come down into the same area. Now, this is an area where when Jesus was introduced as Messiah by John the Baptist, that's where Jesus went. He came to John the Baptist. John was doing his ministry right in here. And he came down to John the Baptist to be baptized himself. We see that in uh, John chapter 1. And John the Baptist said, no, you know, I'm not even worthy to untie your shoe. I'm, I'm lower than a slave. You're the true king, is what he was saying. And, uh, and, and so that activity was going on around here. John did not stop what he was doing. What was John's job? What was his role Pardon? Forerunner. He was a forerunner. So as a forerunner, what he was supposed to do was make straight the path. Right? He was supposed to get the obstacles out of the way so that people could receive the king. So in that sense, he would be telling people what message? Repent. Repent. Because... Um, the way that you enter into relationship, once you know who the king is, the way that you express your belief is through repentance and faith. Right? And the two, you remember when we went through the whole conversation with Nicodemus and we kind of gave the, the, uh, the order of salvation or the, the parts of the process of salvation and you get to that one aspect of uh, Redemption, where repentance and faith 
are tied together. It doesn't matter which one comes first because they, they're so in, entwined that you can't really separate the two. That's what John the Baptist was saying. He was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. So he is a forerunner, and while he was alive, that was his job. And he wasn't dead yet. So he kept doing his job. And even though he pointed people to Jesus, and some followed, so we know that because in chapter 1 we find out that there, there are several that followed uh, Jesus as a result of John the Baptist's testimony. We know that Andrew did, and Philip did, and we know that John did, and Peter did, right? So we, uh, and Nathaniel, and we start getting these uh, characters that are going to be essential players in um, the evangelistic mission of the early church. They were close um, to Jesus, and in fact, the introduction was made by John, but there were people that still hung close to John. Why do you suppose that is? Why would people stay with John when John says, don't follow me, follow him? Why do you suppose that would be? Loyalty? So if you were a loyal follower, what would you do? All the instructions of the leader. <laughs> so you would probably point people to Jesus too. If you understood what your leader was doing, and you understood what his mission was, and you wanted to follow him and support him, you would do the same thing. They may not have understood. So it may have been loyalty, or it may have been misunderstanding. They see this guy in the camel you know, tunic, camel hair tunic, with the, the rusty belt, and uh, he's eating locust and honey, and he's a gnarly dude, right? And you don't want to mess with him. Anybody who, yeah, he's pretty scary in many ways. Uh, but at the same time, a gentle spirit, right? So um, maybe they just didn't understand Maybe they saw the religious practice of John was what was supposed to happen. Change is also hard. The human character is that you don't like change. That's right. Change is hard. It's like, hey, I understand this thing that John is doing. Um, it's very comfortable, even in its discomfort. Right? So the religious practice of John the Baptist, he didn't live in a nice, happy house with the garden and servants, right? He lived out here in this rough and tumble land, which the the uh, the rain shadow is on see, it's the shadows aside where it doesn't rain, right? Okay. So the rain shadow, here's the ridge running along here. And you got all of this moist air coming in from the Mediterranean. And if you look at the way that Israel on the whole um, catches the catches the water um, that you get a breeze coming in off the Mediterranean and you'll notice that this particular map shows this is green that's because it was very fertile and rich it was the coastal plain that's where you grow your tomatoes right then you get into this area coming up to the top of the hill and this is called the Shvela and in that area there's uh, growth but it would be uh, a little bit more arid type of growth. So here you'd have uh, grapes and other things that are going to grow in this area. 
and then you get up here into the top of the hill country, and it's the top of the ridge um, is a very distinct point. On one side, you go down as you approach the coastal plain, you're, you're increasing in fertility. On the other side, you're increasing in aridness to the point where you get down here uh, along the Dead Sea, and it's nothing but rock. And uh, you think nothing could live there. And what's interesting is along these, this area here, um, you'll have springs that'll pop out, of the, pop out of the rock. One of them actually nourished David when he was on the run. Right? And that would be right in here. And so people will live there, but they live in caves. In fact, when David was on the run, if you recall the, the stories in Samuel, David's on the run from Saul, King Saul. One of the places he came was down here, a place called Goat Rocks. That's one way of saying it. And and get. And getting, excuse me. Goat rocks. And uh, in that area there's a natural spring, but you look around it and it is the most desolate, arid place. And yet that's where the shepherd would know if you're gonna be a shepherd in this area, and the shepherds would kind of get the the secondhand foliage. So if it's a rich enough place that you can farm, they're in there, they're uh, tilling up the ground, they're making their crops, they're harvesting their crops. But if they, it was not suitable for that, then it was suitable for the shepherds. So they would use everything that they could, could in this land. And that uh, you look at this land and on the very tops of the hills, there's this little tiny stubble grass that grows. And the uh, you wonder why some of these critters have sticky tongues. Well, it's because they have to, you know, have a sticky tongue to get that little piece of grass. And how they grow to be big animals, I have no clue. So I look at this man, looks like there's nothing there, right? But the top of this ridge, that's where they would do the threshing. Because you've got, uh, on this side, you would actually grow wheat. You would grow grapes. You would grow that kind of stuff. Well, the wheat that grows, they would need to thresh it, they throw it up in the air, they would actually have at the top of the ridge threshing floors. And in fact, the, the temple was built on a threshing floor. It was, if you read the story in 2 Samuel, when David bought the land, it was the place where God stopped in his judgment of the people. Very significant story. Why is this story in the Bible? It's where God stopped in his judgment. And David essentially threw himself at the mercy of God. He said, it isn't their fault, it's mine. Put your wrath upon me. And God's judgment stopped in that place. And David recognized the significance of what God was doing. He said, I'm going to buy this place as a memorial, as a temple to God. And he, he went to the landowner who was threshing his grain because he's on the top of this ridge route. And uh, the guy says, well, I'll give you the land. You're the king. He says, no, I would not make a sacrifice if it cost me nothing. Right? He paid for it. That's the place where the temple is built. It's built on this threshing floor. Well, this is the place where John the Baptist, he was on the dry side, the side that looks like absolutely nothing, where you live in caves. That's where he was living. And he lived a very... Um, trying to think of the word. My brain isn't working fully this morning. Um, he lived a lifestyle where um, he had a very harsh, uh, disciplined life. Ascetic. So, so, yes. Ascetic. Ascetic. In fact, the name of the people that habited this part of it was called the Essenes. 
Essenes. And uh, this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls are, is right here. And it was posited at one point in time that this was a Essenian community. It was a very ascetic, harsh practice and discipline um, where people were you know, really wrapped up in their religion. This is what they practiced, and they were very disciplined in it. Um, and so that's why these scrolls were found here. So they think, they speculate that, oh, this is kind of one of the central places. Turns out that's probably not it, but uh, nonetheless, that's where those people lived. That's where John lived, right? So he's down here. He has no place to, to basically lay his head, <coughs> and people are following him. Why would they follow him? Is it could be because they thought that that same religious practice was what the right thing to do was. Oh. That the way that you show God that you're worthy is that you wear camel-haired tunics and live out and eat nothing but locusts and honey. And you live out in caves. Right? So that would, I would call that a kind of loyalty that's misinformed. Yeah. Right? But it's a good kind of loyalty. It's people that really should know that this is, this is um, the, the reason we're doing that is not because of the religious practice, but because Messiah is coming and we're trying to help people understand um, that they need to repent. That they need to go through a process of purification and preparation. It's interesting, I, I'm a marriage counselor and I work with couples, they'll come in because their relationship is not not good and they're willing to repent but sometimes they're not willing to get back into their relationship and yeah. as you were talking I thought wow you know, some people were willing to repent with John's baptism right? and the repentance part in a way if you stay in repentance you're still doing your works to feel good about yourself that's right and so when you have to accept the relationship with Jesus is based on love, not on works, that, that just, you have no more pride left. And, and right. so the people who are willing to repent and keep doing a little bit of their own works to stay right with God have a little bit of pride still in them. That's right. But There's... the people who are willing to move into that relationship have completely died themselves. Right, and so the way I would describe that from the language that I use is that it's a religious practice that we practice certain things without really the power of the belief of what's really happening. It's not that religious practice is bad. In fact, the repentance makes it possible to come together in relationship. Right? But there's not a true belief which keeps you separate. You're just practicing uh, the the form of repentance without actually believing that God is is doing something in your midst that a relationship can be possible yeah. and restored yeah. right so it's it's all about belief this passage is all about belief it's and what we want to understand is what John the Baptist has to say about belief because this is one of those parentheses. He, you know, John the Evangelist, the author, is trying to, he captured this because he wants us to understand something about authority, revelation, and belief. Just adding on to what you were saying, if you get to that point of repentance, all repentance 
does is remind you that you are guilty. Yes. It doesn't close the deal, if you will, with any kind of reconciliation. It doesn't grant the forgiveness right. that they need. So you, you still don't enter into a relationship because you, real, you, you acknowledge your guilt and you don't feel worthy. Right. And, and part of, uh, there is a, uh, a right uh, remorse for sin, right? We should be, uh, we should feel terrible about sin. And we should feel terrible about our part in that sin. Not that sin is something abstract away from us, but sin is something that we are. So you understand the difference between guilt and shame? What's, can anybody summarize what guilt and shame are? Two different words? i got Daniel's hand up here. Guilt is of knowing that you're wrong, and shame is being found out by other people. The reason shame is, feels different when you're found out by other people is because it's when you identify it with you personally. You are the one that is defective, as opposed to something that you did. See, it's one thing to have separate our actions from who we are and say, sure enough, I did that terrible thing, judge me, I'll pay penance, and move on. It's another thing to feel that you yourself are defective and have no other choice. Christ came to heal our guilt and our shame. He came to die because we were guilty, and he came to heal our shame so that we would have a new identity in him. That we would no longer be defective, but when God looks at us, he would look at us through the eyes of his son, whom he loves. That's how much he loves us. He places that value on us that we can't place on ourselves. So part of repentance is that process of wrestling with guilt and shame. But it doesn't deliver. You have to turn. You asked a question on why um, these people would you know, choose to follow John even though he's telling them about this, you know, this Messiah. And I think you defined it with the word identity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense of peace and security found in a new identity. And um, I think that, I mean, there's also a, a sense of peace. I mean, we're, we're so, as human beings, we're so overwhelmed by how we feel. And there's a feeling of remorse and almost freedom that comes with repentance. And I think that's why people choose to stay in that feeling of repentance and instead of um, taking a step forward in faith. And um, I think um, through, their, through our identity, um, we, we feel more secure. So that's, I think, what these people are seeking with John. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, and that's a very natural human thing that we want to have value, we want to have security. So when we when we look at the things that make everybody tick, right? Um, the reason people, I, I deal with addicts a lot right, as part of my ministry. Uh, I've worked in um, with addicts and healing from addiction, a variety of different types of addiction. Uh, one of the things about addiction is it makes you a promise. Whatever the source of your addiction is, say it's drugs, for example. That's a very in-your-face kind of addiction. Um, the drug is promising something that you believe it can deliver. 
it's, in a way, it speaks to you. They call it a drug call, right? If you work in rehab centers, that's what they call it. And uh, it's so powerful that it can cause people to throw away family, job, um, life itself. Because that promise is so persuasive. What they believe they will get, they will give all for. But it's false. It's false. So the cure for addiction is to understand the truth. It isn't um, the only way that a person can not give all for a lie is to know the truth because they want to give all. That's what a person will do. You're designed to give your all. And when you give your all to the truth, there is life. When you give your all to a, to a lie, there is death. And when you have it brought into your face, like with addiction, that's what it is. It's telling you a lie. So there are lies that happen every day in our life. And what I would say is that, uh, that what you ascribe to some of the followers of John the Baptist, I think, was true. That there were people that believed something about their religious practice, about their religious leader, about um, being, uh, being able to bring worth to God on their own initiative, that they could define what good was. And that they held on to that because even though it was a lie, it gave them security. It gave them some kind of value. And what Jesus came to do was to challenge that. Right? He challenged it at every turn. He challenged what was really true. And John the Baptist kept pointing and saying, listen to this guy. He is the truth. And that's what's happening here. That there were, uh, it says, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Why was Jesus baptizing, or was he baptizing? Well, I'll take you ahead a couple of verses. Uh, if you go to chapter 4, um, it says that, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. So we're going to see that there's a, a movement of Jesus from this area back to the north. Um, but Jesus himself was not baptizing. But there's this rumor that he was. And that in baptizing, he was doing the same thing that John the Baptist was. And there was a play for power. These two guys were building their kingdom and... Jesus was doing the same thing John was, and he was getting more followers. That's a bad thing, right? If you're a kingdom builder, and your kingdom is dwindling, and somebody else is building, it's like, what's going on here? Is he a greater charismatic leader? That's kind of the question that was being asked. Um, and what we see is that John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem. Now, when... Uh, when it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, they were doing the same ministry that John was. So John was saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you read the other gospel accounts, what does it say that Jesus did in his early ministry? Because this is early ministry. 
right? We're getting a picture here of what Jesus did that isn't captured in the other gospel accounts. This is pre-other gospels. What is it that the other gospels do tell us about Jesus? It says when he came, he said the same thing that John the Baptist did. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? That he had fully submitted to the will of the Father. That he was, he was giving his all for the mission at hand. For that which God had, had called as right and good and the only way that man could have life. And so he was giving the same message that John was. Repent. So, sure enough, in Jesus' early ministry, that's what you find in the other Gospels. You know, read the first four chapters of the other four Gospels. You'll hear Jesus say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he's doing. He's giving the same message, and it looks like the same thing John's doing, but there's a difference between the two. And John knows that there's a difference. says, John also was baptizing uh, because there was much water where he was at. Uh, this place means springs of peace, uh, Enon near Salim. Um, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. In other words, John's mission was not yet done, so he still had a reason for, uh, for doing what he was doing. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a, with a Jew about purification. So it doesn't identify who the Jew was, but you'll notice that um, it's, in, it's in, uh, in, in capitals and it's in the sense that this is a person you could probably expect is probably a Pharisee, just like the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, who are you? What are you doing? Tell us who you are. Are you Elijah? Um, this is probably the same kind of interrogation. It was probably a Pharisee coming to John the Baptist group saying, who are you? What are you doing? And oh, by the way... Um, what's his baptism thing? And Jesus is doing that too, right? So they, they were saying, well, Jesus is doing the same thing we are. What's this about? What? Explain to us purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, so they know the testimony, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Like, that's a bad thing, right? Kingdom builders. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So the first thing that John recognizes is that it's all according to God's plan. Nothing happens out of its time or place. That God has called people into service. He's called people into salvation. Right. So one of the things we looked at when we looked at the order of salvation, after you were born again, you're regenerated, and I like that, regenerated, you're born again, um, comes sanctification, and part of sanctification is growing up, and when you grow up, you become like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He served. You become a servant, right? So um, what we see here is that um, John is acknowledging that. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. That the servanthood of John and the servanthood of all those that were called to point to Messiah was all according to God's plan and God's purpose. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So he wants to clarify for him. I'm telling you guys, I'm not kingdom building. The whole reason I'm here is because God sent me. 
This is his plan, and I just happen to not be going along kicking and screaming. I happen to be going along cooperatively. Sometimes people kick and scream. We call that kicking against the goads. The goads are, are the, the pricks. So you'll hear Paul say this. When Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul had knocked off his horse with the brilliance of the risen king, and Jesus says to him, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you kicking against the pricks? That's because they would put these sharp pointy sticks on the front of the cart so that the oxen wouldn't sit there and smack the driver to tell the driver that he was not doing his job right. No, it's like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And what John, he's not kicking against the goads like Paul was. Um, And he acknowledges that. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He's recognizing the perfect plan of God in his life. And he's at peace with that, regardless of the trial that he endures. Now, does, he, does, does John the Baptist walk perfectly? No, he gets thrown in jail, and he's about ready to get his head cut off, and he sends out messengers saying, Jesus, give me, give me a lifeline here. Tell me, really. I need to know again. You're the one. So John is human. But you see a man of great courage standing not kicking against the goads, but fully in support of the role that God has given him in his life. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He makes this statement that there is uh, an authority that is from heaven. The authority, the authoritative structure of God's creation by his word is that his son is king. That's what we read in the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see the same thing in Daniel 7.13 in the account of the presentation of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days. And to him is given a kingdom and an authority and a rule. And that this is the way that God has designed it to be. That the Son is the king. He's a good king. He loves us, right? That there is an authority from above. That which is from above is is from above. That which is from the earth is from the earth. A man cannot make himself God, but God can become man. And that there is a revelation associated with that. That that revelation of who is the bridegroom and what's going on here, that revelation comes from God. And John knew it. He said, you know, I'm doing what God has given me to do. I'm saying what God has given me to say. That truth, all truth, is revealed from heaven. That's why people can say all truth is God's truth. Because if it's really true, it's what God proclaimed. And that there are lies, things that will be false truths. But where do they come from? They come from below. Right? That which comes from above is authoritative. It's true. That's the commentary that we get. And this should affect the way that we believe. And I think we're about out of time. It says, he who comes from above is above all. That's speaking about that authority of the king. 
So this is John the Evangelist's commentary on what John the Baptist was saying and what he has said up to this point in the revelation that he's giving us. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. First thing you got to know, who's the king? What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So this is the personal guarantee, this is the seal, that um, this revelation that you're getting is truth. And it isn't my words, but the very words of God, as they were recorded and carried forth through history. God is true. It is true that Jesus is the king. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. So when Jesus was baptized by John, why was he baptized? He was baptized as a testimony. That testimony was the spirit descending upon him. And it never left. In other words, it, it was upon him and uh, the fullness of God was in his ministry as evidence to all. Right? That's what it's saying here. The Spirit was given without measure. That came from God. We know that Jesus indeed is the Son of God because God gave us that seal. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Again, a statement of authority. Now this is the, this is the message to us. John, he, he's going to give us this message every time we turn around because he wants us to really understand this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. When we read Psalm 110, I always wince when I get to, to um, verses that, that say this. There, there, there's an imprecatory part of the psalm. So we read the declaration of uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And you read through this about the son being both the king and the priest, right? According to the order of Melchizedek, he is a priest forever. And then it says that the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the days of his wrath. Those that are outside of the Son, which is what John says here, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He will judge among the nations and he will fill them with corpses. Oh man, that hurts. To think that God's judgment um, can lead to separation. But there is a point where God says, okay, I've done everything. I've gone to the very extent of the edge of the universe. I went into death and conquered it. If you can't take that, if you can't believe that, there is no more life. It'll be filled with corpses. So when I read those imprecatory parts of Psalms, they remind me that God is good all the time. Mm-hmm. My Bible says um, 
it shall execute kings, and instead of shatter, my Bible says, execute, and execute the heads of many countries. Yep, so what will happen is, is that the authority of God cannot be usurped. And that um, it's not taking by force, it's the rightful order. So when the king comes, and you see this in many other parts of prophecy and in the wisdom literature, um, when the son comes, he's the rightful heir. Um, So if somebody sets up their kingdom against him, it cannot stand because it isn't right. It isn't the, they're not the rightful heir. They're not the rightful king. And in that sense, it's shattering the kings and kingdoms that have been set up against God. In that, there is no life. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and end on this. I'm sure there are lots of questions, and we can entertain some of them next week. Well, no, we can't, because I'm going to be gone for the next two weeks, minimum three weeks. Uh, I'm out of town next week next two weeks and next three weeks. So we won't get together until the 4th of July. (laughs) And then that might not be a good weekend to get back together. So take a look at the BP Blast and find out if we're on. uh, So we'll start again, uh, pick up in Chapter 4, unless you guys have questions on Chapter 3. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, uh, we thank you that you are indeed the king, that um, you are... Loving God who desires relationship with his creation and has actually entered into creation to save us, Lord, and that, um, and that we experience that, not just in an abstract way, Lord, but in intimate relationship with you. And Lord, I just, it's my prayer that all experience that. And I know that that's your hope and your desire, Lord, that all would come to a knowledge of you. And not just in knowledge in the sense of bowing a knee, but in embracing you in belief and in faith and turning to you for salvation. And Lord, um, we're just so grateful for that. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given us that preserves this revelation for us. That you care so deeply that you're willing to challenge all of these different institutions and um, practices that we have set up that are around falsehoods or maybe good practice but don't have the heart that you desire, Lord. We know that you look at the heart and we desire to have a heart after you. Lord, uh, we thank you for this. We ask that you would continue to challenge us as we're apart these next few weeks um, from Sunday school, but nonetheless together in your word and in worship of you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your Uh, protection of us, your provision uh, for us, and your service to us, Lord. We just thank you for all of that. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.